many of you, but maybe not all of you know that I just graduated with my master's degree in theology from Denver Seminary. And I remember my first few semesters. Now, necessary background, I got my undergraduate degree from Moody Bible Institute with a degree in theology. Um, so it was my first few semesters, a bunch of introductory courses. I was bored out of my mind. Um, it didn't take much to get good grades. It's relatively easy. And it was my first semester. There was one class in particular. The class and the final paper were both like carbon copies of stuff I had already done in my undergraduate degree. Thankfully, I had a really good professor. And when it came time to write that paper, he said, Andrew, you can write on whatever you want, just get my approval first. So I decided to write on the Christology of the Barman Declaration. Um, it was something I was sincerely curious about, but honestly, um, unless the guy was a scholar in the field, it should be an easy A. Could just continue to skate by, turns out. He was a scholar in the field. In fact, one of, one of the documents I needed for research, I could only get because he translated it into English. Um, he, he says I did fine. I think he's just a nice guy. Um, I, I bring this up because I actually think the Barman Declaration exemplifies well for us what Christ the King Sunday is all about. Now, let me paint some some historical context for you. It's 1933, Hitler takes over as chancellor in Germany. The Weimar Republic is done. It is now Nazi Germany. One of the first things he does is he tries to get every social and cultural institution and put it under Nazi influence. This includes the church. As you can imagine, this was met with two different attitudes. You had those who supported Hitler, and they referred to themselves as German Christians. Nationalist movement makes sense. Um, and then you had those who opposed Hitler, and they referred to themselves as the confessing church. Both of these camps produced documents, which is great for a history nerd like myself. And we can begin to see the theological controversy that was in Germany leading up to World War II. Um, the German Christians wrote the Ansbach Memorandum. Their primary argument was that they, they took a, just a perverted separation of the sacred and secular, and they argued that Christ's rule was over our personal or spiritual lives, but for everything else, God has given to us the natural orders to reveal his will to us. Um, this was things like race or government, and you can see where that went great for them. Uh, then you had the Confessing Church wrote the Barman Declaration, what I wrote my paper on. And their primary argument was the exact opposite. There is no sphere of life for which Christ's rule is not immediately relevant because Christ is God. Christ is our resurrected and ascended Lord he is the revelation of God's will to us. Therefore, um, in, in short, there is no synthesis, no mixture, no compromise of his lordship and some other lordship. And that's where we can say amen. The, uh, this is what Christ the King Sunday was instituted to teach us. That Christ alone is our king. So I want to talk about three things today to develop this thought further. Firstly, I want to talk about the superiority of Christ's kingship, that he alone is our king. 
And then secondly, I want to talk about the authority of Christ's kingship, that Christ alone is our king. And then thirdly, I want to talk about the reception of Christ's kingship, that is, by faith. So firstly, the superiority of Christ's kingship. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah 42. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 again for us. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will, grow, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I wish I could quote Isaiah chapters 40 and on at length, but that would take too long and I would never be allowed to preach again. Uh, So I will summarize some relevant facts leading up to this passage. So you have King Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, At one point, the kingdom of Judah is being threatened by the Assyrians, the same kingdom that took over the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Um, And by God's grace... The Lord saves the kingdom of Judah and King Hezekiah from these Assyrians. Skip some time later, King Hezekiah becomes deathly sick. The Lord saves him through his grace. And then we get to this place in in chapter 39 where the Babylonians send some envoys to King Hezekiah to congratulate him on his health or something. And then King Hezekiah does... Something odd. He is uh, showing them around the palace, and for some reason, he feels inclined to open up the vaults and show the Babylonians all of the treasures of Judah, showing off his wealth. Spoiler alert: uh, the Babylonians are the ones who send Judah into exile. I wonder what they saw that they liked so much. Um, Then we get to chapter 40. Chapter 40 marks a very clear turn in the book of Isaiah. Scholars argue over who wrote it and when it was written. Um, But this much is clear. It's written to exiles. Uh, And a note about exile. When you exile the people, it was because you wanted to destroy their identity. You wanted to make them a part of a different people. For the people of Israel and Judah, this was nothing less than destroying their identity as the people of God. So we get to chapter 40, and we have over and over again throughout these chapters, God uh, having these moments of declaring his superiority as creator, as God over everything else. Who is like me? Who has held the waters of the ocean in the palm of his hand? Who has measured the heavens, which is but the span of God's hand? No one is like God. The nations are like a smudge on a window, to use Eugene Peterson's phrase. The, there is no idol that is like God, because we, we make our idols out of wood that rots, metal that tarnishes, iPhones that we drop. We, all these things are like dust before him. They are nothing, not even worthy of being counted. And then in in chapter 40, around verse 27 or 28, we get to this part where the prophet is asking the people of God, 
the people in exile, why do you believe God has abandoned you? Do you not know? Have you not seen? Have you not heard? The Lord our God upholds all of creation. He does not tire nor grow weak. In fact, those who put their trust in him shall mount up with wings like eagles. They also shall not tire or weaken. And then we get to Isaiah 42. And the great thing here is that our creator, the one who upholds all that is, chose to be our king. When you read Isaiah 42, you should see some references to the baptism of Jesus. And and that's exactly why Christ's kingship is superior to all others. Because he has created and upholds all of creation. But let's ask another question. Um, How or in what way is Christ's kingship superior? What is it that we, our human governments, our, our, our power, what do we try to accomplish that Christ does so much better? What is the ultimate end of human power and human governments? In all their various forms, they are attempts to accomplish some, some approximation of peace and security. I am so glad that midterm elections are over. Um, I'm somebody who loves getting mail. Like, even if it's an Amazon package I ordered myself or a letter I wrote for myself, I love getting mail. So to open up my mailbox and to see a bunch of poorly made, tacky political ads about how somebody is too extreme for Colorado when all I want is my birthday card uh, (laughs) is extremely disappointing. But over and over again in these ads, I saw subtle promises. Vote for me and we will secure, achieve, fight for some bit of peace and security. Don't vote for that person because they are a threat to our peace and security. All of our striving for peace and security reveals uh, a a primal human desire in the human heart. Um, The primal human desire for shalom. Shalom is um, a Hebrew word that means more than just peace. It denotes uh, wholeness, order, completion, perfection, harmony. It speaks to the human desire for the Garden of Eden. It speaks to the human desire for humanity and creation to be as it was meant to be. And Christ's kingship is superior because it alone can achieve shalom. Everything else, they're just pathetic approximations. Christ's kingship alone secures perfect peace. Think about it. For perfect peace to be accomplished, all antagonisms, all conflicts, all competitions have to be dissolved. But not by a mighty fist. It have to be done by the perfect transformation of will. Humanity living in perfect freedom and harmony. The world would have to be conquered by love. And and what I'm describing here is nothing less than a recreative act by he who created all that is. No economic strategy can achieve this. No political strategy or ideology can achieve this. No technological uh, achievement could do this, could bring this peace about. 
But this peace, this perfect peace that God has promised in the new heavens and the new earth isn't the only peace that he offers exclusively. Um, he, he also gives us an inner peace, that, that peace that comes with being perfectly loved, perfectly secure, the love that surpasses all understanding being showered upon us without ceasing. And nothing can stop it. It exists independent of our external circumstances. If you um, attended the last reading with the rector and read Jacques Philippe's um, Interior Freedom with him, you got to read a beautiful little treatise on this. And if you didn't, I would encourage you to read it because it's a great little book. This is the superiority of Christ's kingship, that he alone can bring about peace now and in the world to come. So now we have to talk about the authority of Christ's kingship. It follows that um, his authority is established by his superiority. Moreover, if you seek peace, you ought to follow Christ. But I want to ask a question. Um, what is the extent of his authority? Or over what does he rule? So this is where our gospel reading for today, Matthew 22, comes in. Um, here the, the Pharisees sought to trap Jesus, as they so often try to. They asked Jesus if they should be paying taxes, if it's lawful to pay taxes. So Jesus takes the coin and asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. They left him and went away. Jesus, as he so often does, packs a book into a sentence. You know, when we read this verse, we might think of taxes or responsible citizenship, but there's, there's so much more here. There's so much more subtext going on. We might take us, we might take our lives and ask the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? The subtext of Jesus here is that you belong to God. What, what belongs to God far outweighs what belongs to Caesar. Namely, all of you. Your heart, your mind, your strength, your resources, your influence, all of what we are belongs to God without reservation. And in that belonging, there's peace. So if, if all of our lives belong to God, that means his authority extends to every corner of our lives. So do you live under the authority of Christ? Do you submit to his rule? Uh, and, and we need to ask this at a deep level because I think most of us in this room, if not all of us, would say that is our desire. So let us press deeper. Let's open up the contents of our hearts and examine them. And I want to do that by asking two questions. What do you put your hope in? And what do your actions tell you about your deepest love? What do you put your hope in? What do you believe will bring about your peace? And to answer this, honestly, takes time and effort because we tell ourselves a lot of lies. So let's, let's just start. Do you put your hope for peace in your political candidate or um, political ideology? Because they, they all promise to bring about some level of peace, security, freedom. 
but not the perfect freedom of Christ. I had a professor at Moody who would say this line, and it always stuck with me. Only the godless pray to their government. Do you put your hope for peace in finances? Maybe it's your budget. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your job. But the more we ask of money, the less it can give. It's a limited resource by nature. But God, he offers his peace in the infinite riches of his grace and love. Money can't compete. Do you put your hope for peace in your own ability to achieve? Maybe it's your your righteousness, your wisdom, your own strength. Isn't the whole point of the gospel that you will never find peace in your own righteousness? It's only the righteousness of Christ. And wisdom, one thing is true about being a human. Your, uh, Your ignorance will always outmatch your knowledge. And our strength I know, I know well the burden of trying to be totally self-sufficient, and it's a curse. There is no peace there. Okay, so maybe you don't find yourself in that list. Um, maybe you find your peace in your family. Maybe you find it in your comfort. Maybe it's the things you own. Maybe it's whatever next season of life is right at the horizon. All of these are poor substitutes for the peace offered to us in Christ. The second question, what what do your actions tell you about what you most deeply love? I'm going to borrow some of the language of uh, Augustine, Calvin, James K.A. Smith. Your deepest love determines your will. Or put it a different way, you become what you love. And so your actions will reveal your deepest loves. To put it as Jesus did, a good tree will bear good fruit, a bad tree bad. You will know them by their fruit. We make, some sources say, anyways, 35,000 choices a day. I would be surprised if we could name a dozen we made yesterday. It it must be that the overwhelming majority of the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis are determined instinctually by what we most desire, what we most value, and what we most love. So do you pay attention to your actions? What do they teach you about yourself? So Christ's kingship is superior to all others because it alone secures peace. Christ's authority extends to All of us, public, private lives, everything we are, extends to all of it because we belong to him. So what do you put your hope in and and what do your actions reveal about what you most deeply love? Now, we have to talk about how Christ's kingship is received by faith. And I was adamant that I include this section in the sermon because I know there are some of you who are saying, wow, What you're saying, Andrew, sounds great, but I don't experience peace. Is this supposed to be some sentimental wish or something I believe is actually true? What are we to think when our whole lives seem to point to one conclusion, that Christ is not on his throne? So I want to consider 2 Corinthians 4.18. I'll read it really quickly so you don't have to turn there. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. It's easy to forget that the great promises of Isaiah 40 and on were written to exiles. It was written to those people who were actively not experiencing the peace promised to them in the prophecy or in the prophet's words. They were promised restoration, but in that moment they suffered. And we find ourselves in a very similar situation. We have the promise of recreation. We have the promise of resurrection. But for now, we suffer. How many of you all know the pain of being at war with your body because of chronic illness, disease, or addiction? How many of us have lost loved ones? How many of us know the pain of neglect when the people who are supposed to take care of you don't? We suffer, and in this, it it seems like we're met with heavenly and divine silence. But in this silence, God is hidden. The true kingship of Christ is hidden because we won't see it with our eyes. We will only see it by faith, that faith that grasps the things that are unseen. I want to talk about that word hidden for a second because when I first encountered this idea of God's hiddenness, I was offended because I thought of like a kid playing hide-and-go-seek. Hiddenness that's sought to stay hidden. A cruel and absent hiddenness. But this isn't the hiddenness of God. No, it's something altogether different. I want you to think about the disciples on Holy Saturday, that day in between Christ's death and his resurrection. I want you to imagine you go up to them, they're sitting around a table or something, and, and you say, I know you all witnessed yesterday Jesus' defeat, but this I tell you, in his death, victory was hidden. They would probably be offended, but that's exactly what happened. The next day he rose from the dead, and his victory was revealed. Victory was hidden in defeat, and the resurrection confirmed it. To believe in the kingship of Christ is nothing less than, than the call to faith in the things that are unseen. I love Calvin's definition of faith. A firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. Our faith in Christ's kingship, it is, it is secure. It is founded upon. It is established because when he died, he rose and he will come again. The cross and the empty tomb, those are the pillars of our faith. Because in the cross, we see his love and in the empty tomb, we see his power. We can have faith in Christ's kingship because of those So take heart and hold fast to that faith that allows us to see Christ on the throne when all else seems like the dominion of evil. As the hymn puts it, this is my father's world. But let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. His kingship, his authority These are far more beautiful than any other rule and authority because it alone can secure peace 
It is peace. So what do you put your hope in? His authority extends to every part of our lives because we belong to him. So do you obey him? And to you weary souls, though hidden, Christ is not absent. He is near to us. By faith, we can begin to grasp his presence with us, that peace he gives us, his rule over all creation. By faith, we can see that we, we have reason to give thanks at all times. So let's do just that. Christ, our King, we thank you. Thank you for being with us and near to us. Thank you for your patience and faithfulness with our faithlessness. Thank you for bringing us more fully into the life you have marked out and created for us. Thank you for being our peace, our shalom. And even when we don't see it, when we cannot grasp anything else, thank you for being our king. Amen.